Today's show comes to you thanks to Ofakind, an online shop for emerging design. For more information, visit ofakind.com. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to After the Jump. I'm your host, Grace Bonney, and today we're coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. You can listen to After the Jump live at our new time every Wednesday at 1 p.m. on heritageradionetwork.org or download the podcast on iTunes anytime. Today's show is about the cost of doing business, both as an artist and as a store. We're going to dive into the day-to-day realities of running a business, what it's like to bring something from an idea into a finished product in the marketplace, and what it's like to operate in the competitive world of online shopping. For today's show, I'm joined by Claire Mazur, co-founder of the online shop Of A Kind, and Catherine Fortunato, co-founder and manager of sales and operation behind her twin sister's jewelry line, Lizzie Fortunato. So welcome, guys. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having us. (laughs) So both Claire and Catherine have a unique angle on today's topic because they know what it's like to watch a design, whether it's a pair of earrings or a tablecloth, turn from concept to packaged good ready for sale. I asked them both to join me today because I'm curious about the details behind a successful shop and brand. So often I feel like I hear people complain about the cost of handmade and the price behind things and what it means to have something made domestically, but I don't think people really understand what goes into the production of things, both from the end of a designer and from an actual retail shop. So I want to start our conversation there. Um, Catherine, let's start with you. For those who aren't familiar with Lizzie Fortunato, tell us a little bit about the company and your role there. Yeah, absolutely. We uh, founded the company in 2008, and as you mentioned, Lizzie and I are twin sisters, Luckily, left and right sides of the brain. So Lizzie (laughs) does all of the creative and concepting and the creative design for the collection. Uh, I have a finance background, so I was able to step in and run operations and sales for the line. The part that we both sort of bridge together is the production, which I know is the focus today, because like you said, we do all of our production here in the States, most of it in New York. And that means that from sourcing our materials to assembling a piece to uh, putting the finishing touches on the piece to quality control, checking the piece to wrapping it and then selling it and shipping it out. That's all done uh, in New York City. Um, Our collections are sort of known for their mixed medium aesthetic. So we do mix a lot of materials. We mix uh, brass chains. We mix antique findings, textiles, braided fabric, braided embroidery, crystals, semi-precious stones, really the sky's the limit. In fact, we're sort of known for sourcing unexpected or vintage components to put into our costume jewelry. Uh, It makes it both unique and hard to replicate, but also sort of a multi-step process. I think one of the things that most people don't realize when they're looking at a finished pair of earrings or a finished necklace is that the number of hands that touched that necklace before it arrived on the store shelf or online you know, is maybe up to five or six or seven different people who are each an expert in their specific craft. So it's not one person who's sort of a jack-of-all-trades who can throw it together, but really, you know, a skilled metalsmith or a seamstress or the plater or somebody who has an in-depth knowledge of semi-precious stones, for example, might all play a role in a single piece. That's huge. So I want to backtrack a tiny Mm -hmm. bit. Um, When you guys made the decision to work with 
uh, makers and with specialists and vendors here in the States. How did you choose, how did you decide to do that? I think a lot of people, when you're starting out especially, it's most tempting to take the option that's inexpensive, that's Mm -hmm. quick, and that's cheap. So how did you guys sort of take the leap to invest in that, which is a, a big deal? I probably shouldn't admit this, but some of it was organic. (laughs) You know, we were young and creative and wanted to create beautiful pieces, but some of it was the resources available to us. So in the absence of having phenomenal factory leads, you know, (laughs) that maybe some bigger stores have overseas, it was really a matter of us pounding the pavement and Mm -hmm. finding out what was available in our own backyard. Uh, On the flip side, we've had the decision since then to go overseas, and that's really where we've decided not to. Mm-hmm. Um, both because of the principle of how proud we are of employing people domestically, but also because we've not been able to find quality overseas that we can find here, where we're really sourcing, again, from experts in each of the sort of niche uh, processes that we're using. Mm-hmm. So it was a little bit accidental, but has been a very conscious decision in the past few years as we've really developed strong relationships and sort of specialties in in our space. Well, and you guys work so closely too with your vendors. I've, I know I've been there when you did try outsourcing stuff before to India or China and you get stuff back and you're like, this looks nothing like what we asked for it to look like. Exactly. And the back and forth involved in getting it to what you want it to look like is really in, involved. And so, you know, having somebody so close to you guys, I know is important because you have such specific visions that you want to execute. Absolutely. It's invaluable to be able to go put out a fire drill yourself by taking the subway up to the Diamond District and meeting <laughs> with a person face to face and leveling with them even if it's on a Saturday morning at 9 a.m. over donuts and coffee that you bring to them, you know, being able to have those people in your backyard and being able to meet their family and go for drinks with them and have a a personal relationship is crucial. And I I think not only that that recourse as you're designing, but also the recourse around quality is so important. In the moments where we've done, you know, let's say we're casting a component and we experiment doing that in China – the ability to know whether they're using brass or a zinc alloy when they say they're using brass. I mean, it's something that I think the average customer and who can blame them might not even know to look for or know to notice. And it sure has happened to us where someone says that they're using brass and then sure enough, you get it back and it's not brass. So if you're, you know, paying the price of using local materials and local vendors and have the ability to uh, sort of see where they're sourcing their materials from, you definitely have a lot more recourse and uh, ownership over the product, the final product, than if you're just placing a purchase order and hoping for the best when you get it back from Asia. That's a great point. Did you guys have to plan for that financially as an investment upfront? I think a lot of people in their starting sort of smaller independent businesses don't know to anticipate those costs or that it will be more costly to produce here in the States, even though it will sort of end up with a higher quality product. How planned out were you guys in the beginning? I mean, if you're coming from a financial background, I'm guessing you might might have had a more detailed business plan. Sure. Um, Again, <laughs> I probably should have had a better business plan than I did on day one. We sort of uh, we sort of accidentally started the business from a hobby, so that made it a little more organic than it should have been. The one thing I can definitely say, uh, especially given my background, is that as we were pricing the products, we def- we did not approach our business saying this necklace looks like at Zara or at J Crew it would cost forty dollars. Mm. So we're also going to make it cost forty dollars. We took a very sort of piecemeal and careful approach to saying. 
okay, this component cost us $5, this component cost us $6, the labor cost us $10 altogether. You know, when you add everything up, we can't wholesale this necklace for less than $100 and still make money. So rather than having a lot of overhead that we started with, which of course would have been helpful, we more took the approach of, you know, we can't manage to sell our jewelry at less than, you know, $100 or $200 and still make money and create a sustainable business. So I think more so the outcome was that we... uh, definitively from the outset put ourselves in a category of costume jewelry that wasn't mm-hmm. going to be a Zara price. It was going to be a higher end price. And that's a direct reflection of the materials and the uh, sort of local processes that we're using. I also think that that's one of the reason, well, reasons why Lizzie Fortunato Jewels stands apart from a lot of the other emerging designers that you see sort of burn out because they did have that business acumen in the beginning to think about pricing, which I think is really important. And what we see a lot of times is a lot of young designers have a lot of success and get to sort of a peak and then fizzle out because they weren't thinking about the pricing Mm -hmm. behind their pieces. Or what you see is they get to a peak and all of a sudden their prices double. And I can think of a ton of designers that have gone through that. And it's a really hard thing to do. um, And it's a hard thing on, on their fans and their audience to all of a sudden be priced out when you've been supporting somebody from the very beginning. So I think it's probably harder to start pricing your pieces where you guys did when you first start out and you don't have the name recognition but I think sticking with it through that and believing in the line and finding buyers who are going to believe that they can sell your pieces for Mm -hmm. that amount is a really important sort of step and process to go through. I have two questions. One, maybe both of you can handle both of these, but where do people find out about pricing? If someone's starting out and they're listening right now and they want to start a small business, where do you even go to see, okay, if Obviously, they can figure out what their cost of goods were, but how do you know how to figure out retail numbers and then sort of mark it up from there? How do you figure that stuff out? I think that some of it is uh, peer research in your community and trying to leverage every possible um, network that you might have. For everybody listening in, I'll give you the the quick (laughs) A, B, and C on it. But the way that we really look at it, if you were looking back of the envelope, is to say, here's all my costs. List them, you know, in an Excel spreadsheet or or however you want to do it and say, down to the last jump ring and tag, here's everything that's going to go into a single necklace. The labor price, the uh, uh, every material, the plating price, etc., and then you're going to hope for at least a 2x margin so you can pay your rent and pay your employees and that kind of thing. So you might double your cost, and that would lead you to a wholesale price. It gets even trickier because then the stores have to keep the roof over their heads, so they have to mark it up again, which you know does make our traditional retail business that you know we all know by going to the boutiques we love incredibly tricky, and that's something Claire can speak to. But uh, you basically would then look at the store doubling again the price for the exact same reason so they can pay their employees and they can keep the roof over their heads and you know for us it was then saying what does that final price look like are we at all competitive and how how do we cut corners if any maybe this necklace doesn't need five mother of pearl stones maybe it's only going to get three because it just pushes it over the edge of where we think the appetite is for somebody to buy that piece um but it is a tricky thing, and I think the, the most important thing to stay away from, and this is what Claire just said, is is to not pick a number out of the sky and then try to operate within that price. I think one thing you've touched on already, which is a great point, is that you've decided to sort of market yourself as costume jewelry or things that wouldn't have to be burdened with sort of the mass market price that came with less expensive pieces. What was the process of putting the message out there and the aesthetic out there that we were going to be a higher market brand? Sure. I think the fact that everything is handmade has really helped that process. So whereas hopefully people appreciate the Made in USA, 
you know, it gets thrown around a lot, and mm-hmm. I think some people appreciate it. I don't think everybody appreciates it. Some people are going to rather you make it overseas and have a lower price. Mm-hmm. I think when you start to see and hear about the handmade process, that is sort of equally important because we do do some things overseas. We do um, extensive embroidery work on looms in India where we feel actually equally proud of that because you've got a, a great hand doing incredibly detailed work that is part of their culture. So we feel proud about that too. I think it's about telling the story of here's all the different people and personalities that made this piece come to life and explaining how the final piece is much greater than the sum of its parts. And for us, that includes a little bit of marketing around it. We explain the narrative. For Lizzie, there's often a travel inspiration or maybe an architectural or a cultural inspiration or reference. And so explaining that entire sort of um, world that Lizzie operates in to bring a piece from concept to fruition, I think adds value to the final product as well. And I know a lot of our loyal fans care just as much about where we traveled in a particular season or what we decided to name a piece or what music Lizzie was listening to when she named the collection as, you know, the final piece itself. What do you think is the biggest misconception about independent design or running an independent design business? Do you feel that customers are assuming things based on perceived success or press accolades that maybe aren't quite true behind the scenes? I'm interested to hear Claire's answer too, (laughs) but... um, you know, may, I think that one of the big things is maybe customers underestimate uh, how much competition we perceive out mm. there. There is a lot out there. And not only are you competing against the you know more mass market people who can sell a pretty good knockoff at a much lower price, you're also competing against a wonderfully talented pool of other designers. And so uh, not only are we thinking about how to produce a quality piece at a competitive price. We're also thinking about how that piece can be different from everybody else who's out there also making, you know, handmade jewelry or, you know, costume jewelry. I don't know if Claire, you think there's other risks. Yeah, I know. I mean, I think for me, I, from my perspective as a shop owner, it, it is about price and which is why I'm so excited that you're doing this because I think, um, we think of our biggest competitors as fast fashion and then the luxury market because the luxury market, nobody questions price. And fast fashion, you know, people are like, well, of course it's $10. And it's really hard, I think, for people to wrap their head around this sort of middle market that's kind of been phased out and I think now is finally coming back mm-hmm. because there is some more attention being paid to handmade and emerging design. Um, but it, it is hard for people to understand why a necklace would cost, you know, $300 if it doesn't have diamonds on it. And um, and that's, that's what's been uh, a challenge for us is to educate people around that. And that's been a huge part of Of A Kind so far is that you do these in-depth portfolios, sort of looks at designers, whether it's a home tour or a recipe or a travel guide. You're giving people so much of a chance to connect with that designer in some way that I think that connection is what lets people be able to understand why they're investing in someone. Did you guys decide that from the beginning, Claire, that you guys were going to do these sort of in-depth looks at designers? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That was that was uh, part, part of it from the very beginning. My business partner, Erica, was in... Um, was in magazines before this and had number one sort of seen the power of storytelling to move product just in you know writing front of book for about a you know a chandelier or something and hearing from the artisans who made it that they had sold 300 of them or whatever it was and but also knowing that the magazines were struggling to sell ad pages alongside that but but the other part of it was that I actually came from an art background and we were very much inspired by what was happening in the um, digital space like with uh, companies like 20 by 200 who Mm -hmm. were selling art online and Erica said you know, I love 20 by 200 like you do, 
but for me it's harder for me to wrap my head around because I don't understand the art in the way you do inherently so for me it would help so much if I understood everything a little bit more and there was more storytelling and I could know you know what inspired the the artist and so it, it was really her who brought that insight into it and from the very beginning we always knew that we'd be telling the stories of the designers and and I think you're right I think that's helped a lot in terms of educating people around you know why something costs what it does mm-hmm. I have so many more questions to ask we're going to take a very quick break and I'll be right back with Claire so thanks for listening Interested in emerging design? Check out Evakind, a site that sells the pieces and tells the stories of up-and-coming makers. The site has featured over 200 designers and offers limited edition pieces that you can't find anywhere else, along with studio tours, travel guides, and even recipes from the designers. To find out more, head to ofakind.com and sign up for the site's newsletter. Hey, welcome back to After the Jump. I'm your host, Grace Bonney, and today we're talking about the cost of doing business and the cost of running an independent design shop with Clara Mazur, co-founder of the online retail shop of a kind, and Catherine Fortunato of Lizzie Fortunato Jewels. Uh, before the break, we were talking primarily about some of these hidden costs, but I want to get into the shop side of things a little bit. Um, for people who aren't familiar with of a kind, Claire, could you tell us a little bit about what of a kind is about and what inspired uh, you and Erica to start? Sure. So we um, sell the pieces and tell the stories of emerging designers. And um, what inspired it um, largely was people like Lizzie and Catherine Fortunato, who who I had known from growing up and other designers in, in similar spaces like Lulu Frost, who Erica and I had discovered early on in their careers and felt this sense of thrill and excitement buying their pieces like we were discovering a young artist before anybody else knew about them. And I think that that sort of thrill of early discovery runs across you know, all categories, whether you love music and you love finding out about a band while they're playing a coffee shop and you know, they eventually go on to Madison Square Garden, that sense of ownership that comes with feeling like you know somebody better and you own somebody more because you discover them early on in their career. So how are you guys choosing? I mean, obviously you're finding people that you knew that you've admired for a while, but how are you choosing the new artists that you work with every week? I mean, that is very much primarily just a matter of our personal taste and and people we like. I mean, I think beyond that, the things that are really important to us are one people who have a sort of cohesive vision. So I think with a lot of um, collections, you can always say, oh, there's one good piece that, you know, I, I would wear. But I think it's much more exciting to work with artists who have, you know, an entire collection who you can that you can really get behind and that shows a vision that's consistent and, and um, tells a story. 
I think that's a very good point. There's so there seem to be a lot of like flash in the pan, but exciting independent designers right now, and then they kind of disappear. And I think a lot of it has to do with that lack of a business plan or sort of the business acumen behind things you guys mentioned before. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today, Claire, was because I feel like you and I share a similar opinion about people really needing to know more about the artists to understand why they should invest in them. And I think that's because you've become so involved in the lives of the people that you're supporting with Epikind. How has that sort of happened? Have you gotten to know all the designers personally? Have you given any of them advice? Is it that that collaborative of a relationship? Yeah, very much so. I mean, you know, up until recently, every single piece we sold on the site was an exclusive collaboration. So it was very much a back and forth. And we did a lot of, you know, doing a lot of the stuff that Catherine mentioned where you're like, it's great, but it's a little expensive. Would it still be as good if we had only three beads instead of five and could sell it for $100 less or whatever? Um, So there's a lot of that back and forth, which has really helped me understand um, their businesses. But there is also naturally a lot of uh, friendships and business relationships that develop. And I think what's really exciting is we are a small business working with uh, over 200 other small businesses. And the amount of advice that's shared back and forth is really exciting. And I, I think it's helped me understand the industry a lot better. I mean, uh, Lizzie and Catherine are close friends of ours and we go out to dinner and I, all the time and every time I walk away understanding my business better because I hear about the struggles they're going through with their business. Claire and Erica must have 40 hours for all of the rest of our 24 hours because <laughs> if they devote as much attention to all the other designers that they do to us, then it's it's just remarkable. We've, Like Claire said, the sounding board of just being able to share your experiences with other young designers, whether they be designers or other small businesses like of a kind, is just an invaluable part of the community and the process. Well, and the relationship you both have is informing either end of the spectrum, which is important for us as a, as a customer, too, because the more that she understands about the struggle or backstory of getting something to the market and the more you understand about the costs that she has to meet, the better everything works out for everybody. Um, I want to talk about those costs a little bit. We've talked about sort of the behind the scenes things with the makers, but Claire, what are some of the hidden costs behind a shop that you think maybe customers don't understand? Well, let's see. There's so many. I mean, I'll speak specifically <laughs> to, to e-commerce, uh, which development is really challenging. Uh, website development, so programming and coding, is incredibly expensive. It's incredibly complicated. It's very competitive to hire developers in New York. Um, and so, you know, all the time we we have customers saying, why don't you have this on the site or why don't you have that? And we would love to. Um, it's very it's expensive and time-consuming to build a lot of the things that we want to build to make the shopping experience better. Um, the photography and is, of course, very expensive, and um, but something that's very important to us. I would say most of our, um, one of the biggest bills we pay every month is our transportation costs for shipping packages out, which is another thing. Um, that is probably also amongst our sort of most frequently uh, messaged things or unhappy messages from our customers is why is your shipping cost nine fifty? Most of the time we lose we lose money on shipping. Um, that's just how, how how much it costs to to deal with shippers like UPS, who you know will take good care of your mm-hmm. packages, or at least hope you will take good care of will take good care of the packages. Um, so I would say, yeah, the photography, the shipping, the store, storing in the warehouse, the website development, and then, of course, paying our employees and mm-hmm. um, and ourselves. We didn't pay ourselves for the first year and a half of the business. That's huge. That's a very big deal not to pay yourself. I think most people who start businesses or support businesses just kind of glaze over the part of the people running that, whether it's a website or making something, have to support themselves beyond just covering their costs. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think like we've been talking about, telling those stories makes a big difference. But what do you guys think is sort of the linchpin that might be missing that's sort of helping people connect the design community in the same way they sort of understand organic food as something that they now accept and they should shop locally and buy organic? What do you think is missing in the understanding between sort of design and accessory shoppers? 
I don't know if this is the solution per se, but you kind of think about the the organic food movement, if you will, and you think about that morning when you're at the Union Square Market and you're communicating with the farmer, and of course you want to buy those beautiful eggs because you hear the story and you know he woke up in upstate New York at 4 o'clock this morning <laughs> to bring you those eggs, and no matter the cost, they're going to be the best eggs you ever ate. And so while we can't be everywhere at once, I do think that communication is incredibly important. And so... Although Claire and Erica are a, a primarily online business, we've actually done uh, different trips with Claire and Erica where we've all gone together to different stores to interact with our customer. So Lizzie and I do this pretty frequently, but whether it's North Carolina or Texas or L.A., just spending that evening in the boutique and sort of communicating with your customers and better understanding who your customer is and what they want and better explaining the process of how that product got to you know land in their shopping bag I think is an incredibly invaluable process. So again, I'm not sure that's the perfect answer because it's not like we can be everywhere at once. And of course, we need to be in the office actually making the jewelry. (laughs) But I think that having that increased communication, of course, leads to increased education, which is probably why organic food, you know, is is, uh, people will pay the price because they're more educated on it and more educated on the costs of not eating it. And I think that the more we can educate and communicate to our customers about where that product comes from, the more they feel very comfortable paying, you know, the extra $100 to, to buy a piece that they know has a real story behind it. I, I hate the answer I'm about to give, <laughs> but I think that there's some truth to it, although it's a pretty cynical one. I think understanding the cost of manufacturing and understanding the cost of um, low-quality manufacturing um, and the tragedies that can often attend it um, is, is going to be part of part of the progress we'll make. Um, when I think about the food movement and what you talk about, I remember movies like Food, Inc., um, that really, I think, had a huge impact on, on causing people to start thinking more about where their food was coming from. And so if we're looking to make similar progress in the world of design, then unfortunately I think we will look at things like um, Rana Plaza and the attention that's paid around to it and the stories that are told around it to help people understand that there is a cost to fast fashion and there is a cost to, um, to manufacturing things a certain way. I think fast fashion is a great point to talk about. I think that's fascinating because I think it's it's so such a parallel to the food movement, especially because people are understanding the need to sort of slow down, to cook things, to eat smaller portions. And that applies to the design market, whether it's fashion or home goods, in the exact same way. And I think there's kind of a missing link right now. People aren't understanding, like, well, I just want to buy it all. It's, it's mm-hmm. all at this website, and it's $20, and there's a new thing every day. Why can't I just buy all of them? But if sort of people were investing in a smaller piece that they were buying once a month or every other month, they'd be able to invest in the things that were handmade, that were made ethically. Um, what are something each of you wish you could kind of convey to your customer that maybe you haven't been able to get across so far? I mean, I don't know if this is something I want to convey specifically to our customers, but I do think if people wore the same thing more often, <laughs> that that would help a lot. I think that because that fast fashion helped everybody sort of have a different outfit for every day of the month. And I think just having fewer pieces is is fine. And probably 10 years ago, we wore the same things a lot more often than we do now. And I think just sort of conveying that that's okay. And I wear, you know, I always have my favorite shirts that I will wear like three times a week. And I feel totally fine about it because that's what I look best in. And that's you know what makes me happy and I think this sort of pressure to have a different dress every Friday night is is harming people's ability to actually invest in fewer uh, more high quality pieces yeah I was gonna say almost the same thing I think it's definitely a quality not quantity approach and Lizzie and I would always prefer that somebody save up and buy one piece 
every six months or every year mm-hmm. and have it be a piece that they love and they adore and they wear regularly. And when they're not wearing it, they display it as an art object on you know their their bedroom shelf. And so for us, it's definitely a quality versus quantity thing. And I think that um, I just have to cite Patagonia's entire ethos mm-hmm. these days because they've just done this incredible sort of viral campaign where they specifically do not want you to buy a new Patagonia fleece. They want you to bring your old beat-up fleece into their store and have their seamstresses remake it and repair it so that it's good for another 10 years. And really, that is such an incredible commitment to quality. And of course, that makes you want to support Patagonia as a company. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that that's good or bad for their bottom line, that they don't want you to buy new pieces. But it sure is incredible for, from a, a, our perspective to see larger and much more prolific companies taking that kind mm-hmm. of stance in today's market. Well, I think both things that you just said, um, Catherine, are good points to discuss. I think it is wonderful and admirable, and it makes us want to support them, but it does also make me question how they're meeting the bottom line then. Where do you think is sort of how do you make up that gap between if you were able to get people to buy less often but to invest more, it doesn't it become the shop owner's job or the designer's job to just continually try to reach a broader audience so that you're having more people buy less often, I guess? You know, I think that as small business owners and small designers, we're nowhere near the ceiling on the potential demand. So, you know, right now we reach such a relatively limited number of people. You know, I could maybe go on a on a business road trip to outside of the major cities where we maybe have a, a brand base. So outside of New York, outside of L.A., outside of Chicago and Dallas. And if I'm in, you know, for example, Wilmington, Delaware, where I grew up, Does everybody know what Lizzie Fortunato is? Probably not. But are there people there who, you know, if they didn't spend their disposable income, like Claire said, buying a new piece of $20 jewelry Mm -hmm. every single Friday night for a month could save up and buy one pair of earrings once a month? Absolutely. So I think that, um, I think at our level, uh, you know, there's a lot of different people who could be tapped as potential customers. And then the last thing I would add is also at our level, and I think Claire and Erica are doing this as well, finding that young customer who maybe first is going to start out with our 50 or $80 piece and then grow into the $500 incredible statement necklace a few years from now when she has her first job and when she's got more disposable income is really what it's all about, finding people who can grow with us and be customers from 20 to 75. It's such a good point. I'm so glad that you brought that up. I think every industry right now, whether it's fashion or design or food, everyone is taught to market to the base they already have. And how do you get more out of this smaller and smaller and smaller group of people instead of thinking, okay, you've got these customers, how do I expand outside of this rather than continually just kind of milk the same people for the same stuff? I think it's a wonderful suggestion to continually reach out further. Because like you said, I think a lot of brands that have bases like in New York or LA or San Francisco, a lot of people in the middle of the country haven't been exposed to that yet. And they might enjoy that and they might become like, long customer. So it's a wonderful point to end on. Um, We have just a few minutes left. So I want to ask you a few quick last fun questions before we go. Uh, For both of you, I'm going to ask you the same question and you can each respond. So the first one is, um, what's your favorite website right now for anything? Oh, wow. That is so hard. (laughs) Um, There's so many I like and I can't. What's the first one you load when you wake up in the morning? Oh, I Instagram immediately. <laughs> <I> <laughs> what about you, Instagram? Catherine? Yeah, that's probably true. I'm a I'm a New York Times straight to T Magazine person. Oh, even deeper. All right. What's your go-to piece of clothing or jewelry? Oh, the shirt that I'm wearing right now, probably, <laughs> and the necklace that Lizzie's wearing right now. So I'm wearing it a piece apart. Um, 
cotton little crop top baggy loose um and it's navy which i'm really into right now and and Kath, i actually bought the necklace that Catherine's wearing which is a black leather um necklace it's called what is it called Catherine? the double take yeah. <laughs> um and it goes with everything shoot claire and i are going to overlap a little too much but i'm going to i'm going to have to say a piece apart as well this is a brand that is very much in line with everything we've been discussing around quality and a more minimalistic well-lived ethos and so uh their building block basics are basically what i wear every day these days I'm glad you mentioned Instagram. I'm social media obsessed right now. So I would love to know what either of you, uh, which is your favorite Instagram feed or trend right now? Um, I've been following. There's two artists on Instagram who I love. One um, is named his his feed is called Donald Roberts, and he's just getting a lot of attention right now in the, the fashion right world. Now. Yeah, he just exploded and he's super clever and talented and prolific. And then the other one is um, her name is Mimi Ochun, and she did all of the graphic design for General Assembly and now she's at Airbnb and she, like Donald Roberts, and is super clever and she actually made some tote bags for of a kind that um, have shapes on them. One has a circle and it's called estranged polka dot and one has a square <laughs> and it's called alienated check and the other one has a line and it's called abandoned stripe and I think that perfectly encapsulates her sensibility which I love. Wonderful. I love view from the top so mm. it's a it's a great feed where um, the uh, views are always uh, from sort of the head down so looking at shoes on different pattern floors and it's so funny you can get the sense that you know, maybe you're visiting Turkey that day or you're out in a green grassy field, but the number of uh, different experiences you can have from the same angle is pretty remarkable. That's great. The very last one, not including your own brands. What's a trend style or brand that you hope makes it big this year? God, I really love loose pants. <laughs> I've been wearing like pajama pants basically every day. I hope that and flat shoes. I'm really big into comfort right now. Flat shoes, definitely. And, uh, I guess just to finish off the conversation, locally sourced in our in our industry. That's wonderful. You guys, thanks so much for being here Thank today. You for Where can we find each of you online for people listening? So we are at ofakind.com. And we are www.lizzy with two Z's, lizzyfortunato.com. Thank you. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Claire. And thanks all of you for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.